Thank you, Sujin. Thank you for Thank you, ushering you. the presence of the Lord into, uh, or ushering us into the presence of the Lord. Uh, I uh, affirm that word of what the Lord is doing in his hand over us and uh, the way he's uh, pouring out, uh, watering us, refreshing us, moistening us all over again. Praise God. Uh, just delighted that we're able to be here together and uh, share into the presence of God with one another. Uh, we've had some victories and healing. Uh, you know, we've dreamt about the day that we could be a healthy zone, a disease-free zone. We've talked about a cancer-free zone. We've talked about uh, different types of zone, diabetes-free zone. But we are longing for this to be a zone, our, our community and everyone that we touch, that it would be the presence of the Lord in our midst. You know, uh, Watchman for the Nations has their motto as a family with his presence. That's what I'm longing for, for to, to be our experience here at City River. If we're going to truly be one of the happiest churches on earth, then, uh, you know, it has to come with the full package of the Lord's presence and what his presence can do among us. We can't have areas where we don't have faith for. We can't have areas where we restrict him from being God and being complete in all that he is and what he wants to do. So join me, uh, join us, join the Lord, uh, join us all together, Lord, in this place where we can believe for the impossible, expect the impossible, and not settle for the natural and the normal. That's the subnormal. Our, our normal is the supernatural. Our natural is the supernatural by virtue of the presence of the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives. And in every life that we touch, every person that we touch, uh, I had a sermon prepared. And uh, as I dug into it even more, uh, I'll keep it for another time because the Lord spoke to me about something that uh, I feel he would love for me to share with you, and uh, he would love for me. He wants me to share with you. And uh, uh, it's a story of our great-grandpa. And, uh, you know, I've uh, put on my grandpa sweater today to, to sort of play that role of a storyteller that speaks to the family of the things that we have as part of our inheritance. So I want to talk to you about our great-grandpa Abraham. And I've done that a lot. And, uh, you know, I've talked to you about Abraham uh, and how he was blessed by God and how he was to be a blessing to others. And God will bless those he would, Abraham was blessed by and he would curse the one that uh, would curse Abraham. I'm going to take that in a different context today, but it's the same principle. It's the same principle of us being a blessing and being blessed by God first because we are his children. So I want to tell you a little bit about this man, Abraham. Uh, when we were in Israel, when we were there one time, uh, we were there. My Silva's and my first trip was actually a gift that was given to us in the last minute by a couple that had uh, been blessed financially. And they were sponsoring pastors on a rotational thing that they would do this. They would send uh, I think it was 10 couples every year to Israel for an educational tour. And uh, they were working this with a messianic 
man who had been raised on the land and uh, he was an expert as telling us the stories. He would actually open up the Bible to us as we would visit locations and he would refer to the land of Israel as the biblical theater. If you can picture that in your mind, the land of Israel, it doesn't matter where you go, there's a story there that relates to a chapter in the Bible. So he would take us on this journey where we would discover the Bible in a living way as we walked. That was in 2009. In 2013, uh, Sylvain and I went to Israel again, and that was with Watchmen. And this time, it was a trip that was arranged to be with the... Most trips to Israel are with the Messianic Jewish people. If you go to Israel as a Christian tour... You would go and your guide would be a Messianic Jew and you would be hearing from their perspective. This trip was arranged with the Arab Christians of Israel. So we were staying on the east side of Jerusalem and because we were uh, guided by tour guides that were Arabs, we ended up visiting certain sections that most Jewish people, whether Christians or non, would not be able to go to even because they were restricted because of the divisions that exist between Arabs and Jews in the land of Israel. This is the land, the city of Jerusalem is called the city of the great king. And in that city, there are, in the old city, there are four quadrants or four quarters, they call them. There is the Arab quarter, sometimes referred to as the Muslim quarter, but it's actually the Arab quarter. Then there is the Jewish quarter. Then there is the Christian quarter and there is the Armenian quarter, and that's a whole different discussion that we can spend time talking about later. Why the Armenians have a unique quarter amongst the rest of Christianity there. But anyway, uh, and there's divisions in that land. So when we landed there in 2013, David Damien spoke to the entire group. We had two buses of about 50 people or 60 people each. And he would speak, and by phone we were connected to the second bus. And he shared with us a principle. He said, guys, before you get off the bus, this is from the airport to our hotel, recognize that you are stepping into a land that has a spirit of taking sides. And this spirit will attack your mind and heart, but you have to maintain your own heart pure before God, just like the angel of God told Joshua. Joshua said to, him, to the angel when he appeared to him, are you with us or against us? And the angel said, neither. I'm the captain of the army of the host. So we walked a fine line of recognizing this division between Arab and Jew. And we walked in the middle to try to be the children of God who are blessed because they are the peacemakers. And it's an amazing experience what we experience. But on that trip, we ended up going to a part of Israel, and uh, I think I can show you a map here. We ended up going to a part of Israel that is, I don't know if you can see that yet. Not yet. There we are. Uh, nope, not that part. Come back here. I'm sorry. I don't know why sometimes technology doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And today has been one of those. On the tech team, they ran into a bunch of different problems. 
and we had problems with video, we had problems with audio, and etc. But the Lord is good, and we're able to get it all done. Okay, we went to a part of Israel, and if you recognize the map, maybe I'll go full screen and you can see it a little bit better. This is the little sliver of land called the nation of Israel. And you can see the border at the top, the dark line, and that's somewhere here. Somewhere here. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. It's somewhere there, and you can see the dark line is the dividing line between Israel and Lebanon on top. And then there's the dotted line that goes down, and then it cuts down across towards the the two lakes that are there, and it goes down all the way. The top lake is the... uh, uh, I guess that's the the Dead Sea there. And you can see the uh, right next to that, there's a little red dot. I don't know if you can see the red dot right there. The red dot is the cave of the patriarchs. Can you see that? And Jerusalem is just to the south of there. So I'm going to go back to this in a minute. And that whole area that is dotted around that red dot, you can see the whole area that's dotted is actually labeled the, the West Bank. Just above the, uh, at the little point where the West Bank sort of goes in, you see the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem is sort of straddling that dotted line. And that dotted line is the dividing line between the Palestinian area and the Israeli area. And that's where all the tension is. And then there's another dotted line you can see on the far left of the map that has the dotted line there that says the Gaza Strip. These are the two main areas where the Arabs live separate from the Jews. The rest of the Arabs that are intermixed, the ones that are living in the two dotted areas, these are the Palestinian authorities areas, they do not hold an Israeli citizenship. They actually don't have a citizenship anywhere. They're in refuge. They're refugees, even though it's in their own land, but they have chosen not to recognize the state of Israel. And because of that, they don't have an Israeli citizenship, nor do they have an Israeli passport. So it's very difficult for any of them to travel. Now, the people that are living in the West Bank or outside that have chosen to become Israelis can get passports. They can get travel documents. But they can also become citizens and get passports. But their cousins, those that are living outside of the the West Bank and Gaza, they're part of Israel. Their cousins who are living in the West Bank or in Gaza look down at them because they have sold out. That whole region, that whole area, that whole nation is actually filled by children of Abraham. Whether Jewish or Arab, if the Arabs, the Palestinians, there is no identification as to where their roots are because the word Palestine was actually what Rome called that whole strip of land after some of the revolutions that took place during the Roman Empire. So the, the people of that land became known as the Palestinians and the Romans chose to do that to sort of rub the face of the people of Israel into the dirt by humiliating them and giving them a name of the nation that was there before they conquered it, the Philistines. 
So they use the name similar to the Philistines to sort of crush the heart of the Israelites and sort of bring them under oppression and under control. So it is argued by some that the Palestinians are actually descendants of the Israelites. Now there's mixed in there some Arabs that came from Saudi Arabia that settled in there. There's mixed in there some Jordanians. There's mixed in there some Egyptians. So the, the Palestinian DNA is a mixed DNA. But research today is showing us that a lot of Palestinians have stayed on the land and have converted from one faith to the other over time. But their physical DNA, when they do tests of their DNA, they discover that they're actually Jews. An interesting fact. But let's talk about this little dot that's in the West Bank, this red dot. This red dot is not accessible to Jewish people because they cannot legally enter the areas that are governed by the Palestinian authorities. There are checkpoints at the highway, and if your vehicle is from Israel, you can't go in, and there's checkpoints going out of the West Bank into the rest of Israel because they were concerned about car bombings and different things. So the security is very tight. For us to go in there, the bus driver had to let them know that we're actually tourists from outside Israel with foreign passports, with tour guides that are going in. So we ended up going in there to visit this one red dot. And this one red dot is the story of what I'm going to share with you today and why it's so significant to you, to me, and to our children. This red dot, the story of this red dot comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter uh, 23. So I've taken the liberty of putting it into this presentation here. So I'm going to read it with you. And we're going to discover what the Lord is talking to us about this. Now, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron. Hebron is that region in the map that I showed you at the south end of the West Bank. So it's just south of Jerusalem, about 40 kilometers or so. Then Abraham wrote uh, in, the, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. The Hittites were the group of people that inhabited the land of Hebron. And he said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some of your property for a burial site. Now, unfortunately, I chose the NIV because the NIV says it a little bit differently than the others, and it, it says it this way. But he actually, in the original text, does not say, sell me some property. He says, give me property. Give me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Now again, the Hebrew doesn't say mighty prince. It says prince of Elohim. Prince of Elohim is very different than mighty prince. It says a lot more to us about the story of how the Hittites perceived Abraham and what they saw in him and on him. Elohim is the 
the word that is used by everyone for God. It is a plural uh, word. You know, sometimes we find El, like is in the city called Bethel. Beth means house. El means God. So it's the house of God. El is the singular to Elohim, which is the plural. So even throughout the Old Testament, he's, God was named by the people as Elohim because there was a plurality about his nature. He's a triune God. Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Now, we have to understand the context of the story. Abraham was like many of us who have come here to Canada. He was a pilgrim. You can even say he was a refugee. He was asked by God to leave his family's home and to travel to Israel or to Canaan at the time and to settle there with the promise that God is going to give him all the land from the far west to the Nile to all the way east to the river and beyond. And all that land was going to be his and his descendants. And when God made that promise, Abraham was old. His wife was old. She was barren. And Abraham had no sons. And God tells him, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And through you, I will bless all the nations of the world. Hard to fathom. There's a promise. There's no sense of fulfillment of the promise yet. To the point that they tried a bunch of different things. They went into Egypt during a famine. They came out of Egypt with a maid that was Sarah's handmaiden. They couldn't have any children, but the promise was there. All of that is going on. And God promised him and reminds him, but there's no pregnancy. So in the midst of this, they're living there. And the Hittites are watching all of this. They're seeing it, and they're also seeing the blessing of God on Abraham. Their eyes, their physical eyes, could see the hand of God over Abraham, just like Sujin saw the hand of God over all of us today. And they could also see the fruit and the result of the hand of God on Abraham through the life of Abraham and how he obeyed God, conducted himself. Now, this chapter 23 is right after chapter 22 and 21, where Sarah actually gives birth to a son, Abraham's second. Before that, he had his son Ishmael through Hagar. But now Sarah herself gives birth to a son. And God tells him, bring your son and sacrifice him on the altar. They're seeing all of this. Rumor gets around. Stories spread that this man is crazy. He says he heard God say, bring your son on the mountain and sacrifice him. And he took his 13-year-old son to the hill and he was going to kill him. But God intervened and Ram came. Wow, the story gets around that Abraham is just this guy that is blessed and protected by God. And they recognize it. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of your tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your wife. In other words, their respect for Abraham was through the roof. Like he said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Why would they treat him like he was one of their own? Why would they give their best tomb to him? 
The tomb is something that you reserve for your family, for your ancestors, the ones that you love and honor and respect. But now, now all of a sudden, the stranger is asking for it. And these Hittites weren't just a group of Hittites he met in the street. He met the elders of the city and spoke to them. And they're the ones that were saying these words. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machlepah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. It's interesting. Why wouldn't Abraham, I mean, we read the story later, that Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who dies in Egypt, instructs his sons, his 12 sons, Joseph and the other brothers. He instructs them, when I die, keep my bones and bury me in the same grave as my father's. Why wouldn't, if this is the tradition and the mindset that you bury your, your, your dead in the same tomb, in the same place as their fathers and mothers, why wouldn't Abraham want to take Sarah and bury her in the city of her birth with her parents? I'll come back to that question. What was going on in Abraham's mind and heart? Why was he looking to buy a, a, a place in the land that wasn't his ancestral homeland? You know, if somebody's traveling and they, they die, most people today, if they can afford it, would fly the body back to their home place and bury them there. Now, we who have come to Canada, we've made Canada our home, so we bury our dead here. But if we're traveling somewhere on a trip or a vacation or something, and God forbid one of us dies... We won't bury them in Mexico or in Cuba or in the Caribbean. We'll bring them home and bury them in our home here in Canada, right? Anyway, ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron, the Hittite, was sitting among his people. And he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gates of this city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. Have you noticed this word, listen, appears so many times already in this one chapter? It's interesting. It appears five times. Actually, six times. The sixth time is Abraham listening to the words of the Hittites. Anyway, pay attention as I read the story. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of all my, of my people. Bury your dead. Wow. These Hittites saw Abraham as a man who was beloved by God, blessed by God, honored by God, that they treated him as one of their own, and they wanted not only to give him the best of the uh, burial grounds, but the owner of that burial ground that he had picked, Abraham had picked, turns to Abraham and says, I give you the cave and the field, not just the cave to bury your wife, I give you the entire field that is my possession, that is my inheritance from my ancestors. Bury your dead. 
Abraham again bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron and their hearing, listen to me. Catch it? Listen to me. If you will, I will pay the price for the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephraim answered, Abraham, listen to me. It sounds like they're sort of upping one another. You listen to me. No, you listen to me. That's not what's going on. They were simply trying to make sure. And that's the word in Hebrew, Shema. In Arabic, we say Isma. In Hebrew, the word Shema is the very word that generations later, when God is speaking to Moses, he tells him, tell the people of Israel, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you about what the Lord is talking to us about one and how he's asking us to have him as number one this year, always, but focus on it, make it intentional this year. Shema, my Lord, hear me, my Lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. I don't care about the 400 shekels of silver. Take the land. I'm giving it to you. Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. Now, if you dig a little bit in the history books, you find that whenever there was a land sold, the price of land transfer, and I'm not talking about land transfer tax, the plot of land, and land was divided in the community according to the families. So this is ancestral land. This is land that the family owns and hands from one generation to the other. The price at that time was 400 shekels. So Abraham doesn't bargain. Abraham pays the accurate, correct market value for the land that he buys. So Ephraim's field in Mechlepah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the fields, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. This is why I know that it wasn't just any Hittite. It was the elders of the city where the elders sit at the gate and they're the ones that open the gate and close the gate for anybody coming in, anybody wanting to trade, anybody wanting to invade. They were the gatekeepers. They were the elders. They're the ones that are watching to make sure nothing creeps in. No enemy has access. And that's the same as the elders of a church. They're the gatekeepers to make sure that nothing enters in that should not enter in and that what should enter in can enter in. They're the ones that are sitting here listening to our sermons when we're preaching to weigh and make sure they see the spirit behind the words and judge it. Not judge it to critique it, to criticize it, but judge it according to the spirit behind it. And he says to them, afterward, Abraham buried his wife in the cave in the field of Maklipa near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. What's interesting is that this is the same site that a couple of chapters later, we read the story continuing and unfolding, 
And in that chapter 25, we read the words, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. How many here want to live to 175? Not too many hands going up. Yeah, exactly. I see the hand, Boris. Just, eh. okay. But he lived a good old age and an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. Now, if you think about it, gathered to his people, where would they bury him? Back in his hometown of Ur of the Chaldeans. But no, his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Maklipah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field that Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah, after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Beer Lahoi Roy. That's not the end of the story. When they were in Egypt, I told you, Jacob wanted to go back and be buried with his fathers. Who are his fathers? Well, Isaac and his grandfather, Abraham. And we read the same thing in the following chapters. At the end of Genesis, near the end, Jacob gave these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. And he names it. He doesn't say just bury me in Canaan when you go back. He says, bury me in the cave, in the field, bury me with my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Maklipa near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron, the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were brought, bought from the Hittites. This is a very important site. This is a, a, a burial site that has become the second holiest place for all the Jews in the world. The first being the Temple Mount, this now being the second. But look at history. History has it so that this site is, like I told you, in the middle of the land that is now in Arab possession. Israelis don't have access to it until something changes. So I have a little video clip that I'm going to share with you that sort of puts it in perspective and shows you some pictures and some graphics from the inside of that. We had the honor of visiting it in 2013, and we were blown away because in that is our great-grandfather of faith. His body is buried there. Now, it mentioned Leah, but not Rachel. Rachel is, uh, is buried some distance uh, from there, but you will see that in the story. The compound behind me is located in the heart of the Judean mountains, south of Jerusalem, and it is one of the most sacred places for Western monotheistic religions. No, we are not. South of it, welcome to the tomb of the patriarchs. The first mention of this site is in the book of Genesis in chapter 23, the times of Abram and Sarah. 
Sarah lived to be 127 years old, but she died at Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron. Abraham then buys a burial plot outside the city, and after completing the purchase, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron. Here the sign is indicating that this is the tomb mark of Sarah. Her physical remains is probably beneath us on a lower level. And the book of Genesis records that later, Abram, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and their wives were also buried in this burial plot. The only exception would be Rachel, Jacob's second and favorite wife who died at childbirth and so is buried at Rachel's tomb some 20 kilometers north of here. This is the earliest event in the Bible of explaining why Hebron is so significant. And centuries later, David, when taking the throne, will also establish his capital here in Hebron before moving to Jerusalem. On the turn of the first century, a big esplanade will be built above the whole site, probably by King Herod. And the site will become a focal point, a place of veneration for the Jews at the time. The site changed hands several times in the Middle Ages, and after the Crusaders were expelled, it will remain under Muslim control for several centuries. In fact, here you can see the Ottoman Crescent from Turkish times. Until 1967, Jews were rarely allowed to visit the area of the site. They weren't allowed even to go in. They couldn't go beyond the seventh step leading into the entrance. But as a result of the Six-Day War, 1967, among others, the tomb of the patriarchs will be under Israeli sovereignty. And now the site is open for people of all faiths, welcoming them to come and worship and pray at this very special holy site. Less visited and less known are the rich remains of Canaanite and Israelite city of Hebron, set on a hill above the patriarchal tomb complex. It's important to understand that the burial cave is not in the city of Hebron in Canaanite times. It is a mile away from the city itself. These are the tangible remains of the Canaanite city. And that means that Abraham probably walked right here to enter the city gate around the corner, seeking for Ephron, the owner of the property that he wished to buy for a burial plot. Modern Hebron may have a reputation of a city in ongoing tension, but historically and archaeologically, it is a fascinating destination. I hope that was helpful to sort of give us some context of the current climate and the current situation. Why is it such an important story? Forget the importance of the grave site itself. Forget the fact that it's contested. Uh, up until recently, the Palestinian Authority has been trying to get UNESCO and the United Nations to recognize this site as non-Jewish, but just strictly as Palestinian to eradicate the history of the presence of Jews in that land from, from the story, the history books. They're trying to do the same with Jerusalem. That's, that's mind-blowing for me. I don't want to talk about it being political, but I want us to recognize the fact that even though the history books 
not just the Bible, but the history books, as well as the Bible, very clearly give us a story that is substantiating one to the other, history books and the Bible, that this was the land that was deeded by purchase to Abraham. Why is this important story? Abraham saw himself as a foreigner. A lot of us that come to Canada and settle here, until the next generation, we see ourselves as foreigners. We don't engage in the land and in the processes of the land. We don't get engaged in the political realm. We don't get engaged in voting. We might not even understand what the voting is about. Even though we become citizens, we don't really feel that this is our home. Am I correct or am I making an assumption here? If, if this is you, just wave hello, just so I can get a sense of that. Uh, some of you who have been born here as descendants look at this now as like my own kids would look at this as their, ha as their homeland. And they feel the rights and the privileges that they would have as Canadians. But a lot of people, especially people from different ethnic communities, look at themselves as opposed to the English and the Scottish and the Irish and the Germans that came in, and the French that came and settled Canada, everybody else views it as a second home as opposed to their homeland. So when in Canada, somebody asks you, where's home? If you're from Korean descent, you might say, I'm from Korea. If you're from Lebanon, you might say, I'm from Lebanon. But Abraham took a different posture because he understood the promise of God, even though he presented himself as a foreigner and a stranger to that land, he dared, he dared to believe that he can have possession of it before the fulfillment of the promise. We know we're going to go to heaven where there's no sickness, there's no tears, there's no pain, there's no broken relationships. There's none of those things. But do we dare to believe that we can have those things that are in heaven now on earth in our lifetime? Do we dare to claim and do we dare to believe? Do we dare to step into the place where we ask for those possessions now? Abraham did. That's our great grandfather. That's the kind of father of faith that you and I have been born into the family of. He dared to stand before the owners of that land. It was their right and their possession and ask, please give me a land for me to bury my wife. But because they saw the hand of God over him, if he had asked for this land before he went to Egypt and lied about Sarah being his sister, which is half true, she was his half-sister, they would not have seen the same glory. He could not dare ask them. But after he had been through the process of being molded by God, shaped by God, asked to sacrifice his son and walk in that obedience, the character of God was now visible in him that he would not withhold his son, but he would sacrifice. That character was visible to the people of the land to the point that when he dared ask, they wanted to give him the land. They recognized who he was. You and I are in the same place. 
we are strangers, the Bible says, in this world. We are foreigners because we are from a different kingdom. But there are things we have to do in this day and age. There are lands and caves and burial grounds and possessions that you and I need to possess in this life and in this realm. You and I need to step into the places where we become the top in our fields to be able to bring the glory of God that is now being worked in us into the areas that we step into. Some of us are going to have to step into places where, for example, as a nurse, Dipti is already demonstrating it, and she will continue to demonstrate the glory of God in her hands, in her words, in her actions, in her heart as she serves the people that she is serving. An architect like Jagap and Sujin will have to continue to allow the glory of God to flow through their hands as they're drafting things. And others, some of you are dental hygienists, some of you are real estate agents. What, whatever you're doing, some of you are stay-at-home moms or dads. Whatever you're doing, allow the Christ in you to work himself in you in character so that you look more like him in every way in your relationships, in your words, in your expressions, in your behavior, in your abilities, so that the glory of God can shine on you and people of this land will say, we want to give you things because you are a mighty prince, a prince of Elohim. So Abraham did that. Abraham continued to do that. And as Abraham did all of those things, the glory of God shone through him, and we see the character that our great-grandfather has. And let me tell you a little bit about that great-grandfather's uh, great, uh, character. Yes, he saw himself as a foreigner in the land, but they saw him as a prince. He dared to ask for a place not only to bury his wife, but he asked for a cave that the name of that cave is interesting. The name of that cave in Hebrew means the one with two rooms or two floors. It wasn't just a single cave, but it was a multiple cave. The word mechlepa, or mechpela rather, implies in it, in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, even in the Talmud, even in the writings of the, the Jewish people, to this day they're debating why it's called that. Is it because it had two floors? Is it because it had two rooms? Well, when we visited it, it had multiple rooms, but that was built afterwards on top of it. They were buried in the caves, and today they have shrines on top. But he intentionally bought that land because in his mind and in his heart, not only did he want possession of the promise yet to come, but he wanted it for his generations that were going to follow after him. The things you and I break through today are not just for you and I to break through. We are the bulldozers that are paving the ground and opening the ground, cutting open doors, opening roadways for the generations that are coming behind us. That's why I wore a grandpa sweater today. Because I'm telling you the story of a grandpa so that you can start thinking like a grandpa as your grandpa Abraham was thinking about the generations to come and what you have to do to pave the way for them. He was given access and possession. Now he owned a piece of that land and he had the papers to show it. He had the title deed 
it is to this day recognized that the title deed was given to Abraham. His, his two sons are fighting over it. The sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac. But they know it's Abraham's. Nobody is questioning that. But he also, just like his great-grandson, David, he didn't just take it. He paid for it. So here's the catch. For us to do the same thing after Abraham, we now need to, as the children of Abraham, we now need to have faith in the midst of tough times and sorrow. This all happened when his wife died. It didn't happen when he was feeling great. It didn't happen when his sons were born and he was happy. It happened in the midst of the hardest time of his life. The woman that he loved and had married and lived with for all those years is now dead. But he pushes himself up. He stands up and he says, I will possess the land my God promised me. So encourage yourself in the midst of tough times. When doctors give you bad reports, when the bank account doesn't look the way it should, when the food is not as abundant as it should be, when the job is tight and the market is tough, hold yourself up. Have faith in the midst of your tough times and your sorrows, just like your great-grandfather. Recognize that you and I are princes of God. And he's put us on this earth for that reason. And start walking in the blessing of God. Last week, we heard about having fun. Absolutely, walk in the blessings of God and possess those things that we're praying for. Possess those things that we have been given. And dare to ask in the land uh, for a place in the land the, the, the Lord has promised us. Not just us and our generation. Dare to ask for those big things. Dare to dream big. Dare to leave a good inheritance for your children's children. That's what a good man does. Expect and receive Expect to receive access and possession. And lastly, this is the part that we have to struggle with sometimes. Be prepared to pay the price. There's always a price to pay. No pain, no gain. We know that for fitness. But this is the same for spiritual fitness. There's a price to pay. The sooner we pay it, the smaller the price. Because we get aligned from an earlier age. But be prepared to pay it. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for our great-grandfather, Abraham. We want to thank you for the way he walked. We want to thank you for the way he lived. We want to thank you for the way he conducted himself and became a model for us in faith. To believe, to show us the way, to guide us even as we read the stories. So, Father, I pray a blessing now to be imparted to each one of us on this call and those that are absent. I pray, Lord, that... In the same way that Abraham walked in faith, we would walk in faith. In the same way, in the midst of trials or tough times, even as this world is going through this tough darkness of COVID, we thank you that we can rise up and possess the things that you have given us. I thank you, Lord, for every one of the people that have been infected and came out victorious at the end. I thank you, Lord, for every one of the, the people that have fought hard in prayer to possess the things that you have promised us. And Father, today we unite and we pray and we claim access and possession for healing for Mary. We want to see her turned around, Lord, fully restored in strength, 
Cover her and Rob, Lord, in this time. We claim healing. We claim restoration. We claim everything that the enemy has stolen all along the way, Lord, to be restored multiple fold. Father, bless them and bless us, Lord, as we stand together. So, Jean, take us and, and bring us to the place where we can worship the Lord together as we wrap up.